What amazing gifts by our young people. It is, it is so exciting to see. Again, I reiterate that. Um, if you, when you leave today, go out in the lobby, you'll see also visual art that has been created by our students. Um, there are photos and things like that that they've taken. Um, just really cool to see our students being used in all the arts. I'm a little bit hot, guys. If you can bring this down a little bit, I'm ringing. Um, so... Also, wanted to just reiterate, by the way, there is a display of flowers out there. They are beautiful, but they are not just to look at. We want all adult ladies to make sure to take home one of those flowers. So on your way out today, grab one of those flower spots on your way out and enjoy that. Um, That's our gift to you, ladies. So make sure you don't forget to grab one of those flowers on your way out. Okay, as we are now in our fourth week on the book of Acts, activated. We are an activated church. We're not just passive. We're not just hanging out while the world passes us by, but we are to be an active church. And so um, I want to play a little game with you. Uh, Have you guys ever had an object that you didn't exactly know what it was used for? It just kind of, and maybe even you even kept it in the junk drawer of your house because you're just like, who knows? Maybe I'll be like, that's what that thing's for. Um, I have a rather embarrassing story. Hosanna and I, when we moved to our current house, we thought, well, let's get a new mattress. It's a good time to just get rid of the old one. So we bought a new mattress, and it was one of those mail-order ones that, like, you cut open the bag, it's like, and it turns into a mattress, you know? So we put it on our bed, and uh, I found it to be firmer than I liked. I was like, this is a firm mattress. I mean, it's firm, I, you know? And so... Uh, I was just like, I guess it is what it is. And so for months, I mean months, I slept on this thing and I was like, it is rough, but it's a new mattress and I'm not going to complain, I guess. I don't know. I'm not getting it back in the bag. Uh, so, so I just dealt with it. And then one day we were changing the sheets and I was looking at the mattress and I was like, man, that design is weird on the side. It just doesn't look like it should go that way. And I lifted it up and there is a top and bottom to this mattress. And we were sleeping on the rigid top of that mattress for months. But my back is in incredible condition right now. That, that's, that's rather embarrassing. But I went online and found some objects that I thought, I wonder if people are going to know what these are. Now, this is not the price is right. This is not shout out the answer. You can say, speak it to your neighbor if you want, if you think you know what it is, or to yourself. But we're going to go through some objects and see if you know what they are. So let's go to our first object here and see if anyone can kind of guess what this thing is. Fine art, yeah. <laughs> All right, so I'll give a hint here. If you are from a tropical island, there's a better chance you know what this is. That is a coconut meat grater bench. That's, you sit on that and you get the coconut meat out with the end of that. So that's a coconut meat grater bench. I don't know how you people didn't know that. All right, this one I think a lot of people will get. Here's our next one. Okay, I will give you a hint. It is not a turkey baster. If you've used this, you are not going to want to baste a turkey with that. For those that work with cars, this is an antifreeze tester. It tests your antifreeze, all right? William knew that one. Um, All right, let's go to our next object here. That is not a prop from a horror movie. It is a real item. Your hint is, if you're from the Midwest, you may have a better idea what this is. It is a corn husking glove. They wear this to husk corn quickly. So there you have that one. Anyone know what that one was? Okay, there we go. Sandy husking a lot of corn. Um, All right, let's see our next object here. This one. Okay. That's very old. That's your hint. 
Uh, that is called a blasting wedge. A blasting wedge. And so if a log was too big to fit through a sawmill, they would drive this down into the log and then they would put black powder or gunpowder into the end, pour it down and it would dispense inside the log. And you see that little thing on the top, they put a wick in there and uh, kaplooey, no more log issue. Um, and, uh, and so that's what that was. Anybody knew what the blasting wedge was? Okay. Let's go to the next one. This one was an odd looking one to me. All right. That's also old. That's your hint. That is a gunpowder tester. Um, back in the day, not all gunpowder uh, would come out the same quality and things like that. And so when a batch would come out, they would put it into this uh, flintlock gun, shoot it off. And that's a spring-loaded kind of contraption on the end with markers about how strong that particular batch of gunpowder was. And so they would fire it off to see how strong the gunpowder they had was. Um, all right, let's look at our last one here. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it's no moon. That was a dumb joke. Okay, so. No Star Wars fans today. That's okay. We'll, we'll move forward. All right. All right. So, so objects. But these objects were created by their creator for a purpose, right? They were created, even though we might not even understand what they are at the moment, we might misuse them if we were to have them. We'd be like, this is a very odd bench. I don't know. Maybe it's for practicing riding a tiny horse, you know, or whatever it might be is they were created by their creator for a specific purpose. And so we've been in this story of the, of the church in Acts, and the day of Pentecost occurs, and the age of the church is born. And the church is growing like gangbusters. It's explosive. And the church is sharing with each other in really profound, sacrificial ways. We talked about how last week people were selling their things just so others in the church could have what they didn't have. They were meeting together every single day. Without fail, every single day. Some of us think, man, if I could make church twice a month, I'm doing pretty good. They were meeting every single day. Now, that doesn't mean that the early church was not experiencing profound difficulties and challenges, both externally and internally. Sometimes we talk about the Acts church as though it was the perfect model, and if we could just do that, we would be doing church right. Let me tell you, they had a lot of issues themselves. Um, Peter and John, they healed a beggar outside the temple, and that kicked off a period of real persecution for the church. There were arrests made, they were thrown in prison, there were beatings and threats. They were socially ostracized, they were seen as a cult, and, and being seen as a cult is not just that, like, oh, let's not talk to them. You were at risk of your very life. And so um, they were ostracized socially. And then internally, as I mentioned, the church had its issues as well. There were racial prejudices within the church. Um, even at the highest level of leadership, there was racial prejudice. There were feeding programs that were being mishandled and misled. There were widows that weren't getting the food they needed. Even though people were selling their, their things and all this, there were widows that were starving. Uh, there was a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. They heard about all the good things that were being said about people that were selling their things and giving it away. And they wanted that notoriety. So they sold some stuff and they, they, they lied about how much they gave. They said, we're giving you everything that we sold with the sale of our, sale of our land. And they lied to God and they lied to Peter. And for that, they were struck dead. Um, whoa. So... Uh, there were some internal issues within the church. And so as we read through Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, as these healings and miracles are occurring and the church is growing, on the opposite side, oppression and persecution immediately followed it. 
And something we can really learn is that an effective church is without question going to meet opposition. An effective church is going to meet opposition. God is, is moving, but there seems to be friction and outside forces and internal challenges and personal struggles. And sometimes we look at that and go, we must be doing something wrong. If we're feeling this, this, uh, uh, this, this resistance to the church moving forward, something must be wrong with us or what we're doing, or maybe we're not in the right place. But let me tell you, the enemy, you better bet that the enemy is going to put up resistance against an effective church. He's going to do everything he can to shut down an effective church, whether it be internally through strife and brokenness or through external pressure, he is going to bring it. And so when you see these things going on, it's because the church is being effective. Now, let me tell you, there can be very dysfunctional, ineffective churches that have a lot of problems too. But do not think just because that there be, uh, there be resistance or that we be facing uh, outside forces that we're somehow out of step with God. And during this time, during this oppression that the church was uh, experiencing in Acts chapter 6, there's a guy by the name of Stephen. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to start and be based out of Acts, um, mostly in Acts chapter 6, 7, 8. Um, but we are going to be bouncing around. If Paul wrote a book of the Bible, there's a good chance we'll be in it. So just get ready with your, your sword drills this morning, all right? Or go to the Sunday links and be ready to follow along with us. So Acts chapter 6 is where we're starting today. Verse 8. It says this, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. So this cat, Stephen, was not an apostle. He was, uh, he was a deacon. As a matter of fact, we mentioned the feeding issue that was going on, widows not getting their food. He was one of the people put in charge of making sure things were straightened out. He stepped in and as a deacon in the church was making sure that the food program was working. However, he was not an apostle. Acts 5 tells us that he was, however, filled with the Holy Spirit. And just as we read, signs and miracles were being used through his life. This is yet again us seeing evidence that the signs and miracles were not just set aside for the apostles to do. It wasn't just for the 12 guys that hung out with Jesus or for Paul. This was something for all spirit-filled people to experience. That they were to be used by God in this way. And so the leaders of the synagogue see that this is happening in Stephen's life. And they didn't like being made to look foolish. Because Stephen not only was doing these amazing things, but then he challenged them and he made them look foolish. So in Acts seven fifty-eight, it says that they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And his accusers took off their coats and laid them at, a, at the feet of a young man named Saul. Everybody say Saul. So, they take Stephen, they throw him outside the city, and they begin to stone him, and they put their feet at this young man named, or they put their coats at the feet of this young man named Saul. Now, Stephen would become the first martyr of the church. He would be killed because of his proclamation of the gospel. And as they're executing Stephen, they laid their coats at this young man's feet. Now, laying their coats at Saul's feet does not mean that Saul was like working coat check at the time. Like that the, the stoning execution center, he's like, I'm the coat check guy. That's, there's significance to what's going on there. I did some uh, cultural background research on what all was going on here. So a public stoning and the records we have from the second century Jewish records would entail throwing the individual first from a height, usually from the city walls. They'd cast them down. As a matter of fact, if you read in the King James Version about when it says they cast him out of, or when they threw him out of the city, it actually says they cast him out of the city. So they most likely threw him from the city walls down below. And then from the tops of the city walls, those above would hurl large stones down on the accused. And the first to throw rocks would be those identified as the witnesses to the crime or the offense. They would be the first to throw and they'd be aiming for the individual's chest. 
And this was a strenuous exercise, hurling large stones. It required both arms. So they would often lay aside their outer garments so that they could have this strenuous uh, motion be able to be completed. Sometimes when we hear they were, someone was stoned, you're like, man, they just threw like rocks at them until they're like, ow, I guess I'm just going to die. This hurts so much. No, they were crushing them with stones. Throwing them down um, from, the, from the top of these walls. And so it was so strenuous, involved so much motion that they would take off their jackets, kind of like getting ready for an athletic event, and they laid them at the feet of Saul. And, and Saul's presence there indicated two things. First, it indicated that he was trusted by those who were participating in, in Stephen's execution. They're like, put our coats with that guy. Secondly, it shows that it had his full approval. If anything, he was emboldened by this event. He, was, he saw what happened and he was like, it stoked a fire within him. In, in Acts chapter 8 now, in verse 1, it says, Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. He agreed completely. And a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem and all the believers, except for the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. My mind goes to the Gestapo, banging on doors. Who do you have in your home? Any followers of the way? And Saul is going through Jerusalem. He's working his way systematically, hunting down the church, trying to find them. It goes on in in the next chapter, in Acts 9, verse 1, it says, Meanwhile... Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. In other translations, it says that he was breathing out murderous threats. Breathing out. I think that's an interesting kind of a, a word picture there because it means he's literally aspirating hate for the church. He's breathing out hate for the church. He just finds them vile and disgusting. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, um, something that must be put out of its misery, must be stomped out. And so he's aspirating this hate for the church. And he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So he finished his work in Jerusalem. He heard that the followers of Jesus were scattered, right, to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And so he goes, write some letters to these other religious leaders give get their approval so i can go and hunt people down there so he's getting ready to go to damascus to bring people back in chains and so this saul who would later be known as paul let's just get this cleared up now i might go back and forth between saul and paul i ask your forgiveness and that you track with me on whoever's name i say okay he's living this life that he feels he was called to He's living a life that he feels this is my purpose for being. He is zealous for seeing the law of God in its place. And anyone who seems to deviate from it should pay the consequences. And as he would allude to several times in the future, Saul says, uh, Saul was born into the perfect scenario. He had his life worked out. Um, He was ancestrally Jewish. He could trace his line back to the tribe of Benjamin. And so he was a Benjamite, and he had all the, all the benefits that came with being a Jew, but he was born in a place called Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey, which is part of the Roman Empire. And being from Tarsus, that mean he, meant he had Roman citizen, citizenry as well, which came with all of the benefits that came with that. So, he, so just, just to clarify, if you were born in Israel, though it was part of the Roman Israel, you were part of the Roman Empire, you were not a Roman. 
you were a Jew. But because of where he was born, he was a Roman and a Jew. He had these two benefits. Not only that, he was, he was a Jew, but he was also a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee, which was one of the strictest sects of, of uh, study under, under the Jewish law. And he studied under a guy named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a leading Jewish thinker at the time, and he was a rabbi. And remember, we talked about Jesus being a rabbi, and in order to follow a rabbi meant you had to be at the top crust of society. You had to be the smartest. You had to have everything in order. And so he's following what was considered one of the greatest thinkers of the time and the greatest rabbis of the time, and he was one of his followers. He had everything in order. And so he was zealous about the law of God, so much so that he hated any departure from it. And so he went after Christians with this passion. It was his life calling. It was his purpose. Like he told the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 113, he says, I know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how violently I persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews and my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. He said, of all the people killing and arresting, arresting Christians, I was the best at it. <laughs> of all the people, I was number one. But we know the story, and I'm not going to go into it, about Saul on his way to Damascus. He had this letter that he was ready to deliver to start arresting people in Damascus. And as he was on the way, Jesus intervened in his life, knocked him off his horse, and he, he was blinded. And, and, and he came to this realization of who Jesus was, and he, he was brought to this house of this man named Ananias. And, and uh, when Ananias prayed for him, these, the Bible says these things that look like scales fell from his eyes. And I, I think this is a really interesting thing because um, he was blinded by, you know, this encounter with Jesus and these scales came from his eyes. And it's a symbolic of the blindness to the truth that, that Saul had had. Though he was passionate and knew the Bible inside and out, he could outquote probably anybody. He was blinded to it. And I think this was Paul, in Paul's memory as he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He wrote this to the church in Corinth. He said, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ who the, is the exact likeness of God. He had been blinded to the reality of who Jesus was until these scales came off his eyes. He was baptized and he began to follow Jesus. And in no time, he, he wastes no time. He gets up from being baptized. He's probably still dripping wet and he runs straight into the synagogue and he starts preaching. He starts preaching in the synagogue. So, so we'll start calling Saul Paul now. And he felt so clearly what his call was. It was to preach to those who he had once counted as one of himself. To preach to his fellow Jews. He went into the synagogue where other Jews were and he shared the same experiences and backgrounds and cultures. It was so logical, right? If I'm going to preach to anybody, where should I go? The people I know, the people that I have associated with, the people that know my story. It just makes so much sense. So that's what he started to do. In Acts chapter 9, it says that Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days and immediately began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is indeed the son of God. What a funny turnaround. Can you imagine? You're in the synagogue waiting for this letter from Paul. Or Saul, who's like, I'm coming to arrest a bunch of Christians. He shows up and he's like, guess what, guys? It's real. He's a real. And you're like, wait, is this a trick? You know, like, what's going on? And he starts preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. He says, I'm called to preach to the Jews. However, this is something interesting I hadn't realized because often we kind of don't put these two passages together. If you read in Acts chapter 22, Paul is recounting his story of his conversion to a group of people. And he includes some pieces here that aren't included in the story in Acts chapter 9. 
So if you have your Bibles, jump over to Acts chapter 22, verse 17. Paul is telling the story of his conversion, and he says this, After I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and fell into a trance, and I saw a vision of Jesus saying to me, Hurry, leave Jerusalem, for the people here won't accept your testimony about me. But Lord, I argued. How many of us have ever said, but Lord? They certainly know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you, and I was in complete agreement when your witness, Stephen, was killed. I stood by and kept the coats they took off when they stoned him. But the Lord said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So what sometimes escapes our notice is that immediately after his conversion, Paul had to... Learn to trust God with his story. Paul was a planner. Paul was someone that liked control. He was an an intelligent person. He was an academic. And now he was learning that he had to start trusting God with his story. You see, Paul's response is as if if he thinks Jesus had made some sort of mistake here, right? He said, but Lord. But Lord, don't you understand? He he tells Jesus about his background as a Pharisee, his experiences, right? He says, I was in this community in Jerusalem. I'm in the position to preach to the Jews in Israel. This This is perfect for me. If anything, maybe it's like he's able to make some amends for what he had done in Jerusalem. That's what I would be thinking. I had Stephen killed. I approved of that. This is my opportunity to to save these people that I had misled, that I had pulled away from the way. But Jesus... In love, corrects him. And he says, no, go, for I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. You see, Paul didn't start his life with Jesus thinking he was was going to be the greatest missionary of all time that we know him as now, right? When we think of Paul, we look at immediately the maps of his missionary journeys. And we hear the stories of all these missionary trips that he took. Paul didn't know that. He thought, my job is here in Jerusalem. And Jesus encounters him and says, I'm sending you to go to the Gentiles far away. And so uh, we like to have planned out. Where are my planners in this room? Who would say you are a planner? You like to plan things out. How many seat of the pants people do we have? You're like, well, let's just see what happens. Okay. I'm I'm somewhat a planner. I got to say, I think it would bother you if I showed up here on Sunday. It'd be without a plan, right? Just be like, well, we've got some time. Let's... Let's see what we let's see what happens, right? I I like to come up here with a plan, with with something I've studied for and prepared for. Um, I have bad dreams about like showing up at church and not having a message prepared. That's that's been a nightmare that's woken me up. I'm like, I gotta read something. I like to have plans. My wife is even more a planner than I am. If we're going on a trip, she knows where we're going, the places we're going, what's going to be there, you know, all those things. I, on those ends, I'm more like, we're just going. This is going to be great. But we can have plans. This is important for you to hear. We can have plans. And they can even be righteous plans. They can even be godly plans. But they may not be God's plan. Was it wrong for Paul to want to start preaching immediately in the synagogues and go into Jerusalem and preach the gospel? Absolutely not. That's a godly plan. But what was God's plan? To send him. And we need to be willing to surrender our plans to the Lord. 
We need to be willing to surrender our plans to the Lord. Proverbs 16.9, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. You see, the story of Paul is the story of a man that's moving forward with a plan over and over. And as I continue to prepare and study for this message, over and over I see Paul coming forward with these plans and they get changed on him. I think he was frustrated and I think God did it on purpose just to mess with him. I think he knew that he was a control freak, honestly. That's my, my theory. And he just wanted to get Paul to continue to trust him more. It's this guy moving forward with a plan, then having to adjust it to the direction that God had. It started with the road to Damascus. I mean, that was the first and ultimate one, right? I'm on my way to do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to arrest people and throw them in prison and whatnot. And God interrupted his plan. Changed the course of his life. Romans chapter 15, Paul's writing a letter to the church there in Rome. He hadn't been there before, but the church had already started. And so he's writing a letter um, in verse 23 of chapter 15. He says, but now I have finished my work in these regions. And after all these long years of waiting, I am eager to visit you. I'm planning to go to Spain. And when I do, I will stop off in Rome. And after I've enjoyed your fellowship for a little while, you can provide for my journey. But before I come, I must go to Jerusalem to take a gift to the believers there. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. And they were glad to do this because they feel they owe a real debt to them. Since the Gentiles received the spiritual blessing of the good news from the believers in Jerusalem, they feel the least they can do in return is to help them financially. And as soon as I've delivered the money and completed this good deed of theirs, I will come see you on my way to Spain. I'll just tell you something. Spoiler alert. That's not how Paul got to Rome. He didn't do it on his way to Spain. The rain in Spain did not get seen. He never got to Spain. Never made it to Spain. And the way he showed up in Rome was in chains on his way to his execution. You see, Paul had all these plans. He had all this laid out. Um, he He had exactly what he wanted to do all in a row, all his ducks in a row. In Paul's missionary journeys, at least three times, though, it tells us he was shipwrecked. Never getting directly to his destination, often having to adjust to where he was. Uh, He ended up on the island of Malta and preached the gospel there. And God used that opportunity, changing his plans to bring the gospel to a place that had never been preached before. And then again, we see Paul going, um, he he has this plan in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. He says, I'm going to go to Asia and preach there. He never made it to Asia. For some reason, the Holy Spirit prevented them from getting there. It says in Acts 16.6. So they ended up going to Macedonia, which is in northeast Greece, which actually isn't in Asia. Um, So Paul has all these plans and they get changed. And in Isaiah 32, it tells us something. But the, the question we have to ask is, does this mean then that we should live our lives with no plans because God is just waiting to mess them up? Is God just waiting to mess up our plans? He's like, yes, that fool made a plan. Of course not. Isaiah 32 says, but he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. It's not ungodly or or foolish to make plans. As a matter of fact, throughout Proverbs, it talks about the wisdom in planning. We should have be people that have plans, but, but Paul continued to make these plans even when not everything would go according to them. 2 Corinthians 1, I think he was frustrated here again. He says, you may be asking why I changed my plan. Do you think I make plans carelessly? Do you think I'm like people of the world who say yes when they really mean no? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you does not waver between yes and no. He's like, I'm frustrated. I told you I was going to be there. You think I'm just changing my mind? I was going to do everything I could do to be there. But Paul reminds the church, it's important that we're not careless with our plans. Yes and no. 
that we be grounded in our decisions, but no matter what, we must always default to trusting in the sovereignty of God. That is his bottom line, is the sovereignty of God goes first. Trusting the sovereignty of God above even our plans. This is why Paul told the church in Ephesus. I told you we'd be in a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the epistles here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to, fill his, to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. And furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, which he chose us in advance, and he made, makes everything work out according to his plan. How many times did we see the word plan in that segment of Scripture? Three times. And whose plan was it? His plan. God's plan. You see, we can trust Jesus with our steps. I think this is the realization that Paul came to as he walked through life, is recognizing, I can trust God that it's his plan. I, I, will, I will walk out in faith, I will make plans, but ultimately he will order my steps, as Proverbs says. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9, God says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So this morning, our challenge, church, is to surrender our will, surrender our plans to His. To surrender our will to His. See, though it's a good thing, though it's a righteous thing, our plan might not be the right thing for us in that moment or at all. But maybe God's preparing us for that later. Remember, Paul had this plan to go to Rome. It wasn't the right time, wasn't the right circumstance, but God brought him there in his own way, in his own timing, that he would receive glory. As a matter of fact, while Paul was in Rome, he wrote more epistles. He had the opportunity while under house arrest to write more scripture. God works things out in the right time. Perhaps God has a work to do in our lives before we walk into that season. Perhaps we're not yet ready for that season. I, uh, two, three years ago, we're coming up on now, three years ago, you remember that big windstorm we had right before the, uh, the wildfires that happened? That windstorm hit, and that night, uh, the tree in our front yard fell over. As a matter of fact, it came within just inches of my truck. The next morning, I looked out, I was like, oh. Um, the, it, it, uh, it crashed over, and, uh, it, and it, uh, it was quite a job to clean up. But um, as I was looking online... Tree people online, I don't know if they're people that are trees or what, but tree people online say that typically a tree's roots will extend about two to three times the width of the tree's canopy. A healthy tree should. The roots extend two to three times beyond the canopy itself. And these roots are meant to bring nourishment to the tree, right? They're meant to, to bring nutrients into the tree, but also the, tr the roots extend to give the tree capacity to withstand the storms that are going to come, the elements that come, the wind, all the, the, the snow load, all these things. The roots extend to give the tree the strength to stand in the storm. And perhaps, sometimes, we try to reach further than our roots allow with our own plans, 
We are not yet rooted deeply enough. We have not yet put down the roots. They've not yet gone out far enough to say, God says, it's not yet the time. I'm still doing a work at the unseen level at areas of your life that you aren't yet prepared. And it's time for that work to happen before I let you execute this next level of your plan before we step into those things. You see, our plans and agendas extend sometimes beyond what we're prepared for. And God's plan is to establish our foundation before we step into that new season. We need to wait on him. Ephesians 3. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. And your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long and how high and how deep his love is. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to full understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power, the power that comes from God. Power cord. You see, we may not fully understand, but we can trust that God loves us and he does have a plan. We might not fully understand. Did you catch that, what Paul said there? He said, you may experience the full love of Christ even though it's too great to understand fully. God's plans go beyond our imagination. Look what he says in the very next verse. We just read that. Look what Ephesians 3.20 says. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more, Than all we could ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. See, Paul's assuming that we're asking God for things and dreaming of things for our life. Did you read that? Let's keep that verse up there. He says he's able to do more than we ask or imagine. That means we're asking God for things and we're dreaming big dreams. And he says that God who sees your big dreams and sees what you're asking for, he's able to do immeasurably more than you could even hope to ask him for. Even hope to imagine with your mind the things we hope to plan out. He is so much bigger than that. He can give you even more than that. We can rest assured that it is done according to the power of His work within us. You see, when we do things of our own strength, it's going to be limited by the ceiling of our own capacity. I have a capacity. I have a limit. And when I do things of my own strength, I'm going to hit that capacity and I'm going to hit that limit. And it's only going to go so far. But my my plans may fail. My plans may come up short. But His plans will succeed only by His power, though, at work through us not by my own strength we know what the verse says in Zechariah chapter 4 not by might not by power but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts it is through his power working in us that these things can happen God-sized plans can only happen by his power work within us the maker the designer has a specific call and purpose for you even though you might not see it yet and it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are You might say, I feel like I'm past the days of dreaming right now. I'm just kind of here. There's no way God could use me. Let me tell you, there is no time stamp or expiration date on God using you in profound ways and his plans being worked out through your life. You might say, I'm too young to be used by God. I I still, I, I, I need a certain education level. I need to, you know, have this or that. Let me tell you, God is ready to work in your life now. He's ready to execute his plans through his power in your life today. But it's by trusting his sovereignty, saying, God, I trust you. The maker, 
the designer has a specific call and purpose for you. Even though we may not fully understand it or see it, he sees it perfectly. The one who designed you, the one who created you, has a purpose for you. He has a plan for you. So I have two questions for you as we close this morning. First of all, have you made yourself available to be used by God and his power? Have you made yourself available to be used by God and his power? If that, that means, the, the, the second part of that question would be, if he tells you, this is what I want you to do, are you willing to step into it? Remember, Paul was not ready to go to the ends of the earth. What if God told you, I'm calling you to the ends of the earth? Sometimes we automatically exclude ourselves from that, but what if God is speaking to you right now, I'm calling you to the ends of the earth? closely enough for him to guide you with his plan can you actually hear that plan how closely are you walking with God or have you been off on your own agenda this whole time you haven't even been able to hear from God what he has intended for you how closely are you walking with the one who is sovereign in all things to listen to his voice let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment as we get ready to close here Lord, I thank you that you are sovereign over all things, that there is nothing that's outside of your knowledge, your power, your strength, your wisdom, or your love. And so this morning, Lord, I pray with this church that we would walk with you close enough to hear your voice when you call us and you give us direction, that we would hear your voice, and then secondly, that we would have the courage to step out and to trust your plan, the resolve to say, not my plans, God, but I yield them to you. That we would lay down our plans, even though they be just, even though they be righteous, even though they be godly, that we would surrender ourselves to you and your direction and your call. And Lord, we pray for your wisdom, and courage, just as the church prayed for courage when they came under persecution. They didn't pray for relief. They prayed for courage. This morning, I pray for courage for your church. As we step it out, out into our world, we don't pray that you, would, uh, that you would prevent challenges or difficulty. We pray that in those, you would receive glory, God. That in the challenges, in the, in the difficulties we face, that you would receive honor. And that, Jesus, you would be glorified in everything that we do. In your name we pray. Right now, church, before we go, we're going to fill out our connection cards. And so if you'll go to nlcchurch.com slash connect or use the Sunday links, here's what we ask. Would you do this? Or also there's new paper ones we've got there in the seat backs. You can do a paper one. And on your way out, our ushers have the buckets. Just drop it in the bucket on the way out. They'll be holding the bucket for you. Let us know what we can be praying about. But I challenge you to respond to this question. What is an area that I need to surrender my plans to God? What part of my life have I been perhaps holding on to or what area have I been hearing God's voice and I need to respond in obedience to his call? All right, so let's fill out our connection card for just a moment and then I'll let you take mom out to lunch, all right?
so closely with our rabbi, with Jesus, that we would hear his voice, that we would hear his call, just as Paul heard it so clearly to go, and we would be obedient to him in every step that we take this week, and moving forward, in your name we pray, Jesus, amen, amen, New Life Church, God bless you, have a wonderful, wonderful week, we will see you next Sunday, and at Life Groups on Wednesday throughout the week, God bless you.